All right, so glad to have you in the session today. Um, as a housekeeping item, we will wear masks in the session today, so please put yours on. I really, really appreciate it. Um, if you're here for anything besides what's love and unity, uh, you're in the wrong spot. But <laughs> My name is uh, Onia Okwabi. I serve as a teaching pastor at 21st Century Church. Um, I'm also a PhD candidate who defends in less than a month uh, my PhD uh, studying sociology with a focus on race and religion. Um, and so today we want to talk about what's this idea of love and unity. Um, and so I will leave lots of time at the end for questions, but if there's anything you don't understand as we're going through things, feel free to just go ahead and interrupt me. You hit record twice on there, right? It's already recording. Oh, okay. Thanks. So before we get into what's love and unity, I want to do a little exercise to open our minds. So you'll see on the screen an image. And I want to give you five seconds. And I want you to think of as many things as possible as this somewhat nebulous image could be. All right, you guys ready? And go. Oh, to yourselves. To yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and stop. All right, how many were you able to think of? One. One. <laughs> well, all right. Um, did anybody, was anybody able to think of two? Okay. How about three? Four? Four? Okay, so three was the max. More than, how many did you think of? Eight, okay. This is a fantastic illustration of, of the point here. Um, basically, we as grown-ups, our minds get stuck into mental maps. We've seen things before, and so when we see something new, we take what we know and we apply the same thing. We're like, this is what it is. And then once we see that thing, it's really hard for us to see something else. When you show adults, on average, three is the average number of how many things that they're able to think of. But when you show a kid this picture, they, on average, think of six or seven things that this picture could be because they are so busy applying different things to different places. So, you know, I see a tomato between two slices of bread, and then I'm done. <laughs> That's what I see. Um, but kids don't do that. And so... For us to talk about love and unity today, we need to open our minds a little bit like children. We need to stop with the things that we've known and understood about what it means to, to have love and unity or what it means to be united as a body of Christ and say that maybe God's imagination, God still knows how to think like a kid, maybe God's imagination is bigger than the patterns and, and things that we have seen in the past. A couple of years ago, my husband and I began this process of reimagining love and unity. And what happened is we had been working in the multi-ethnic space for probably 10 years at that point. I was already in my PhD program studying multi-ethnic churches, and we were in prayer one night. And the Lord said, or impressed on us, I have not called you to multi-ethnic. 
And so that was one of those moments where it was like, oh, crap. I just wasted the past 10 years of my life. Um, but thankfully, the Lord <laughs> in mercy continued. I called you instead to love and unity. Because what happens when you focus on multi-ethnic, when you focus on just bringing people from different racial groups together in the same room, you can get that. But you may never get to love and unity because you're not paying attention to what the different people are bringing into the room, what they need to be united and be on the same page. And so reimagining love and unity led us into a process of what is God saying in the scriptures the body of Christ is supposed to look like, and how do we get there? How do we get to love and unity instead of simply multi-ethnic? And so one of the number one things that I believe you need in order to do that is having the right view. Having the right view. We're going to talk about three things that you need. The first one is the right view. And this scripture is one of my favorites. It's a scripture that I didn't understand for years and years and years until I read it in the message version. And then I felt like I finally got it. And it says, your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. Too often, <laughs> our view determines what the rest of our life is like. If we look at the world in distrust and, and factions and this group against that group and that group against this group, we're never going to have a life that projects this love and unity. But if we instead allow our eyes to be open and wonder and belief, again, very much like a child's eyes, then we can start to see and we can start to imagine what a world of love and unity can be like. We have seen uh, in our world a tremendous amount of division. Um, at this point, the church remains, even though churches have become more uh, diverse remains the most segregated institution in American life. And so given that, we look around and what we see, we hope for maybe a little bit better. We maybe hope for incremental improvement. But what would it look like to look at the world that we see and believe that it could be completely different? What would it look like to believe that it could reflect the kingdom of God? And so to, to challenge us in this mo for a moment, I want to put up a scripture that we often use when we talk about the idea of love and unity. And I want to read it for a moment. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
I want you to sit with this. I'm going to give you three minutes or so. And I want you to do what that previous scripture said. I want you to open your eyes wide in wonder and belief. And look at this verse as if you had never seen it before. And then after those three minutes of reflection, I want you to tell me, what would a church, not just an individual body, but a church like this look like? Let's spend that couple of minutes. All right, what did God show you? What did you see anew? Yeah. You know, I look at that verse, I just feel that, you know, we are all connected by the same Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So all of us, no matter where we are, where we're from, what our backgrounds are, that we are in Him as He is in us, and we are connected through the Spirit of God inside us. Amen. 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 How about anybody else? What do you see? Us working together like one big machine, but for his will. Yeah. Like a factory. Yes. Everybody has their own part. Amen. Amen. I mean, we talked a little bit about that in the last session, the idea that we all do have a part, and when we're all working towards the same thing, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Maybe one more. What do you see here? Go ahead. Kind of, uh, like either kind of like a bicycle tire with all the spokes or kind of like a spider web where it's like, yeah, we're all connected to each other, but we're also connected in the middle to God. Mm, yes, because if we were connected to each other but we lose that connection to God, it's not worth us being connected, right? What purpose are we connected for? So, yeah, all beautiful things. And so, you know, when we look at a, a scripture like this, I think we have been, we've been too ready to accept less than what God is telling us here. Jesus is praying that our unity would be the same as the unity the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. Us in this room, being that united, that that's the example that our churches are to follow, that we as followers of Jesus are to follow, that we are to be in lockstep, that the, the things that I care about are the things that you care about, are the things that we work on together, that there is not any gap. You know, Jesus said, <laughs> whatever he, you don't see me doing anything that I don't see the Father doing. You don't hear me saying anything that I don't hear the Father saying. 
that is the standard of unity that Jesus prayed for. And Jesus didn't pray for things that Jesus didn't believe could be possible. And so what I want to encourage in this idea of opening ourselves to the right view is that we don't sell short what it looks like to follow the biblical standard of unity. It's not that we come into a church together and we're able to tolerate each other because we don't talk about certain things that are contentious. It's that we actually do the hard work of getting to a place where we have the same idea about what God is saying and the same idea about what we need to do with each person doing their part in order to move the body of Christ forward. Have we seen this yet? Not even close, right? But we can't stop believing it's possible. Because when we stop believing this is possible, we start working towards things that are suboptimal. We start working towards having a bunch of different colored people in the room and, and you know, playing a, a gospel song once a month. That becomes the goal. Instead of this, this is the thing that Jesus wanted us to have. This is the thing that Jesus says will let the world know that Jesus is who he says he is. And so we can't stop working for this. That's what comes from the right view. Oh, yeah, go ahead. This is so beautiful because the church I attend, we got a new pastor um, just this past fall, actually. But a little over two years ago, we merged with another church. Uh-huh. And then some other families from another church. So it was like three churches merging. Uh-huh. And then we got a new pastor this last fall. And it's just, everything is just coming together with all, you know. I mean, a lot of times it's hard for churches to merge. Yes. But everything is just coming together. Just, you know, I mean, it just fits right in with what this verse is talking about. We thank God. And that's a fantastic example and encouragement to us that that is happening. The second thing, after we have the right view, is having the right eschatology. Having the right eschatology. Um, which is just our understanding of, of the end times. Where is this whole thing going, right? Um, we have the 16 fundamental truths. I'm not going to contradict any of those here. But I do want to encourage us to think about our present time a little differently, perhaps, than some folks have been encouraged to do in their churches. And to, to start off this conversation, I... I use probably the one of the number one times where Jesus did this. Um, and there were many times. So the fact that this is one of the number ones is, is saying a lot. But this is after um, Jesus had already resurrected. He's sitting around with his disciples. And they ask him this. So when they were assembled, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will reestablish the kingdom and restore it to Israel? He had to have been, really? Are you still on that? Because Jesus had come to, in part, correct a fundamental misunderstanding. That the Messiah was coming as a military leader in order to um, restore the kingdom of Israel to its leadership. And Jesus, throughout his teaching, had said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is not a kingdom that comes from above. This is a kingdom that comes up from underneath. This is a kingdom that's like yeast. And when you put yeast in bread, it doesn't all happen at once, but it multiplies, and it multiplies, and it multiplies, and it multiplies, and then all of a sudden it's through the whole loaf. 
This is a kingdom that's like a mustard seed that starts off tiny, but with, with love and development and germination, it grows so big. Mustard seed was like a weed. You couldn't get rid of it if you tried. The kingdom is like that. And so when you ask this question, is this time when I'm going to restore the kingdom? Duh, no, because there's work to do. Because I am leaving you behind. Because you're the yeast. Because you are going to take this place and you're going to make it look like a place where I am in charge. That's what the kingdom is. The, the place where it looks like Jesus is in charge. And so, in order for this to happen, we have a role. We have a role to play. And so, uh, yeah, and this also goes along with you and what do you think is possible. When you look at the world around you right now, when we look at the world around us, it doesn't yet look like a place where Jesus is in charge. And if we don't have the right eschatology, that could cause us to throw up our hands and say, well, when Jesus comes back, Jesus will fix it. No! Jesus is like, I left you. You go fix it. Wherever your sphere of influence is, make it look more like the place where I'm in charge. Keep moving that forward and it's going to be like yeast. And it's going to grow and it's going to get in every crack and crevice of society. When we talk about love and unity, it means us believing that that previous scripture that we saw, that the idea of self-sacrificial love for each other and unity is really possible and then working to make that happen wherever it is that we are. Not settling for the idea that oh, we don't see John 17, I guess we'll see it when Jesus comes back. No, we, ha- we need a fundamental belief that we can see it now. Um, because there's, Jesus says he, he's already torn down the dividing wall of hostility. So there's nothing left for Jesus to do in order for this to happen. It's for us to pray and to get the strategies and to move forward. So the right eschatology doesn't leave us in a place where we're like, well, the world's just going to keep getting worse. It's going to get terrible. Like, no. You're here to bring light into the world. You're here to bring love and unity into the world. And so when we decide that, um, things start to look different when we start to see our mission and our mandate as building the kingdom of God wherever we are. And then finally, the right priority. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more in in practical terms about what I see in the church as a sociologist, but I did want to start off by laying the theology. Um, And this is probably one of the hardest but the most important ideas in terms of priority. Because, again, we've already been instructed how is it we should come together in one body to begin to see that oneness that Jesus prayed for. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, it says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. So even even so, the body is not made of one part, but of many. So here, again, a lot of people think of 1 Corinthians 12 as only dealing with spiritual gifts. But in verse 12 here, there's a shift. And Paul stops dealing exclusively with spiritual gifts and says, 
Let's see what some of the other divisions that exist in the body in Corinth. And so we begin to talk about this idea of Jews and Gentiles, ethnic differences, deep-seated ethnic differences that had controlled people's entire existence up until that point. Slave or free, economic differences, dealing with the people who have and people who have not, and saying, despite those sorts of differences, not just spiritual gifts, that's included here as well, but not just spiritual gifts, ethnic and socioeconomic differences, we are all one body with one spirit. Continue. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that we seem to believe are weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should be, have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So we, <laughs> this is the answer, right? <laughs> like, easy. So that there be no division. That's what we were going for. We've got an answer. Great. Let's break down a little bit about what the scripture says, how we do that. The first one is we need this idea of um, unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Sometimes when we come together in one body, instead of each part doing its work, each of us having a job to do, it's like, no, no, you're here now. You're a member of the Ohio Ministry Network. This is how you dress, and this is how you act, and this is how you worship, and this is how you fill in the blank. But that's not <laughs> what we're asked to do. What we're asked to do is to say, look around. Look at the beauty of the idea that we have hands and feet and eyes and stomachs. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen an eye trying to be a stomach, but it doesn't go well. I have been convinced because it's surrounded by stomachs that I will never fit in. I'll never be loved. I'll never be important unless I become like the other parts I see around me. Our churches shouldn't be that place. Our churches shouldn't be a place where we take people who God has gifted with, with particular um, you know, influences and ideas, and we take them and we shape them and mold them into exactly the same thing that we've always produced. Because then we won't have what we need in order to do the things that God is calling us to do. So we have to allow eyes to be eyes and feet to be feet and hands to be hands. The second thing I see here is mutuality. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the opposite of that is, I do need you. And so even more so than not trying to take one part of the body and turn it into another part of the body, we also can't be like, well, you're that part of the body and so you need to be over there. Desperately recognizing our need for each other means that we don't approach anybody as I'm better than or my beliefs are better than or the way I do things are better than because that expresses to that other person, I don't need you. 
we have to be careful about this one when we're doing um, work with people who are maybe a lower socioeconomic class than we are. Do our actions communicate, you need me, but there's nothing from you I could possibly need? Or is it always this idea of mutuality? There's always something that um, I need from somebody else. Even when we're doing missions work, you know, Ohio Ministry Network is fantastic at missions work. There may be some missionaries in this room. Are we communicating to the people that we're going to that there's nothing about you that's good, there's nothing about you I need? Or are we communicating as a person who God has made as an image bearer, you have something I need too, and I'm bringing you something I believe you need. It's a whole different attitude that we take when we approach this with mutuality. And then finally, and this is the tough part, this is the part that I see people get wrong most often because um, they don't like the scripture, <laughs> perhaps. Well, what I often see is that people start with the, so that there be no division in the body, and they ignore the part that comes right before it. So that is a henna clause, which means the part that comes before it, if you do that, you will get these results. And if you don't do it, there's no guarantees. The part that comes before, so that there be no division in the body, is God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. There are parts in our society, when we go around today, that lack honor. And I, can, I will explain a little bit about those parts and, and why they lack honor in a, in a few minutes. But if we put the body together and we don't give greater honor to the parts that have lacked it, then we will come into the church and we will do exactly the same thing. The folks who are marginalized outside of the church because of their identity or because of their race or because of their gender or because of their socioeconomic status, they will come into the church and they will be marginalized again. Their voices will not be heard. Their opinions will not be listened to. The service will not be designed around what it is they need to feel comfortable. And once again we will do the same thing that everyone else out in the world does. What would be different if we said, the ones who are marginalized out there, we're going to make sure and hear you're heard. Because we know our natural tendency, by, based on what we see around us, is not to do that. So we're going to redouble our efforts to do that. And, and look what it says. It says when we do that, when we center the marginalized in our congregations, it's not that the marginalized are all of a sudden lifted up and, and everybody else is, is under the foot. What happens is there's equal concern for each other. So this scripture is a corrective to what goes on everywhere out in the world. I've studied the military. I've studied universities. I've studied workplaces. I've studied K through 12. You name it. There's not a place out there where white is not better than black where male is not better than female. Not one. Where rich is not better than poor. And the reason why, I believe, is because the church is supposed to be that place. But we can't be that place because we're afraid to do this. We're afraid to say that people who are marginalized out there are going to be centered in here so that we can model equity. Until we do this, we don't get the rest of it. We don't get no division in the body. We don't get its parts having equal concern for each other. And we don't get the idea that we suffer together and rejoice together. And so that's what it means to have the right priority. 
that we <laughs> change our systems. And just to you know, put real brass tacks to it, one of the things that we do in our church, 21st Century Church, is we've said um, when there's an incident, when there's something going on, we are going to center the, the perspectives, the experiences of women of color and black women in particular. Now that might sound self-serving because I'm a black woman, but the idea is not that. The idea is that we keep pushing power downward to the people who have been marginalized. So while I am a black woman, I'm also a highly educated black woman. I come from a highly educated family. And so what that means for me is I'm looking around the congregation and I'm looking for women of color who don't have a voice, who don't have the letters behind their names and who nobody is listening to. And I take my microphone and I say, you need to be the one to speak on this. You need to be the one that we're listening to. And so each and every one of us, regardless of what our position is, the idea is that we are continually looking for places to push power downward so that the parts that have lacked honor can have honor. And that's what starts to create no division because I'm not trying to hold on to my power. I'm not trying to hold on to my influence or my voice. I'm trying to give it away. And when that happens, we start to be united. Too often we try to unite without doing the step. <laughs> we bring everybody together and then people end up getting hurt because they come into a place and they're like, this is like every other place I go. I don't have voice. Nobody listens to me. My, my perspectives are ignored or diminished and it doesn't feel like the kingdom of God here. We have a role in changing that. So the way that we have tried to uh, operationalize that at our church is our second pillar, which is called love and unity. And by love and unity, it says that we actively seek to combat every bias that positions one person or group above another. We know that this is not what Jesus want, wanted. You know, we're all... It's a funny saying, but the ground really is level at the foot of the cross. So that's what we're trying to live into. If there is bias that positions one person or group above another, that ground is no longer level. Our job is to actively level it. And that's what we mean by love and unity. So that we can have the imagination that is in John 17 come to fruition. One of the ways that we do that is by the Love and Unity Project, which is a ministry of our church. Real Talk About Race is one of the um, uh, e-courses that we've launched. It's a five-session e-course that allows people to have common language, common understanding about issues of race. And so this is something that you know, we have devoted and dedicated ourselves to, to making sure that across race, class, and, and gender uh, in particular, um, that we are making a difference and an influence for the body of Christ so that the church can be that example of a place where people are really being treated equally. Don't, wait, wait, stop. <laughs> and so with that foundation laid down, I want to spend just a couple of minutes, and I'm going to fly through this because I really want time for your questions, um, laying down why class, race, and gender? Why these things? Because a lot of times we're taught in our going around everyday lives um, 
particularly if you, you live a middle-class white male existence, your whole life is designed so that you don't see the fact that there are disparities. It's just true. That's, that's how our society functions. It's not a fault. Um, like uh, Isabel Wilkerson says, we inherited an old house, and we don't always know what's behind the walls of those, that old house. And so as the body of Christ, getting a better understanding of what's going on in our old house uh, so that we don't figure it out when the termites eat the floor under us and we collapse. So focus on class. Our society is profoundly unequal. Um, would somebody tell me how much wealth they think is held by the top 10% of folks in our society? 95%. A lot, right? Go ahead and you can click the... Not quite 95%. You see, years ago, people used to not know this, but this has come to be much clearer to folks. It's, it's over, it's almost 90% at this point of the wealth is owned by people who are in the... the top 20 percent, um, people think what would be ideal would be about 30 percent of the wealth, but we're nowhere close to that. Is this United States or worldwide? United States. Um, only about 39 percent of Americans have a thousand dollars. Maybe more right now because of the stimulus check. You know, <laughs> we all got a thousand dollars right now. Um, <laughs> But on an average day, fewer than half of Americans have $1,000. And you think about it, it is not hard to have an emergency expense be $1,000. You know, have high deductible health insurance and, and have an emergency, you, you're going to eat up $1,000. Have something go wrong with your car, you're going to eat up $1,000. So fewer than half of folks could meet that emergency. And again, it's not, not because they haven't heard of Dave Ramsey. I'm sure that they've heard of it, but it's, they, don't, they, they don't have it. There's no way to get it. Um, and only 12% of those, 12% uh, more, could ask a friends or family. So not only do you know, almost half of folks not have $1,000, they don't know anybody who has $1,000. There's been a recent surge in $2 a day poverty. Imagine a person in the US living on $2 of cash a day. And intergenerational mobility. Some people will say, you know, none of this matters because you get an education, you get a good job, you move up. That's not typically what happens. And again, not because people aren't trying, um, it's, it's because Things are not set up for them to do that. Intergenerational mobility, if you start at half of the median income, on average, it takes a person five generations to move up just to the median. But that's not a rags to riches, five generations just to move up to the median. And then finally, question for you all, if you were going to college, would you rather be a high income person with like really bad test scores? Or would you rather be a low income person who's really smart, who's getting the grades, who has these high test scores. That's who you'd rather be. Morally, that's probably who you'd rather be, but you're going to be less likely to graduate college than the high income person who's got low test scores. You're smart, you're capable, but you probably have to work jobs, you probably can't afford your books, and you're going to run into all kinds of obstacles 
Maybe somebody in your family gets sick and you have to drop out to, help, to go work. You're going to run into all kinds of obstacles that your high test scores can't overcome. And so how does this show up in the church? Well, as it turns out, you can pretty reliably tell what socioeconomic class that somebody is by which church they go to. Um, turns out we're in the bottom. <laughs> Uh, Assemblies of God, uh, along with conservative Protestants, uh, Adventists, and other Pentecostals have the lowest level of college attainment. Uh, Unitarians, Jewish people, Episcopals, and Presbyterians are kind of up on the stratosphere. Um, But the idea is, you know, why should you be able to tell what socioeconomic class somebody is by what church they go to? Um, and I think most of us have probably seen it, that you have the rich church in town and the poorer church in town. It's like, don't go in there. Those people, you know, you need to show your bank statement before you go in that church. But again, it shouldn't be. <laughs> if the idea is that we would be one, how are you going to have churches that are high income and churches that are low income? You should have churches where anybody can walk through the doors and feel comfortable. The other thing that's true about uh, class in the church is you know, a lot of times the way that we talk about poor folks um, may make them not feel super comfortable being in our church. Um, we have a lot of emphasis on self-control and work ethic, which are important. I don't want you to hear me saying they're not important. What I'm saying is we need to be balanced with our message. And one of the clearest illustrations of this is the marshmallow test. Have you guys seen the marshmallow test, like celebrities did this with their kids? So the idea is... Um, You put a marshmallow on a table, and you take a child, and you say, if you can wait 15 minutes and not eat this marshmallow, you'll get two marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm not even willing to wait 15 minutes. You forget it. (laughs) So this test has been used for a long, long time to say, Kids who pass the marshmallow test, they have self-control and they are more successful in life. And so once again, it takes people who are poor and says, well, you probably couldn't have passed the marshmallow test. You don't have any self-control. You want to go buy the new sneakers. You want to go do this and that. But psychologists weren't completely satisfied with this test, and so they added on another layer to this test. They took kids and they told them, okay, I want you to color me a picture. But when the kids opened the art supplies that they were given, the art supplies were completely broken. They were useless. They were not able to color a picture with those art supplies. And so the kids, of course, were saying, hey, I need new art supplies. I can't really do what I need to do with this. And so the researcher says, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring you back some art supplies. And the researcher leaves the room. In half the cases, the researcher came back and brought the art supplies, and the kid was able to do what they needed to do. In half the cases, the researcher never came back. And then after that, they did the marshmallow test. Which kids do you think are the ones that passed the marshmallow test? The ones that got the supplies. Because what they've learned is, if I wait, if I do what I'm told to do, things will work out for me. But the other kids realized, this person's a liar. My life is a lie. I can't count on anything from one moment to the next, so I'm going to go ahead and eat the marshmallow that I have in front of me. That's what poverty does to people's brains. 
Not because it's their fault, because any of us in that situation would do the same thing. But it teaches people, I can't trust my situation because my situation is going to change because I don't have the resources to make it stable. And so I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. And then we take people who are in that situation, again, to no fault of their own, and then we judge them based on it. We preach sermons about it. And that causes other people to say, oh, well, maybe these people don't deserve to have what they need to succeed. Race. Race is not, in some cases, what we've been taught. So I want us to understand what it is. It's a system of hierarchies to justify inequality. And it operates by assigning meaning to physical appearance. I look at you and I say, you are white. And I assign a series of meanings based on that without even consciously trying to. It's so embedded within us. And there's no biological reality to it. Um, We have, at this point, mapped the entire human genome. There is not a set of genes that I share with every black person that white people don't have and vice versa. In fact, there's more um, variation within racial groups than there is between racial groups. So any idea that somebody is more athletic or more intelligent or more any of these things because of their racial group, there's no basis to it whatsoever. But we continue to believe that because that's what we're taught. And that creates all sorts of effects because we act based on it. So give you an example of some effects. Asian Americans will often get this question, where are you from? No, where are you really from? Seems innocuous, but on the days they receive that question, they have less and lower quality sleep than on days when they don't. Arab Americans, we're basically not a racial group before 9-11, but after 9-11, we're vilified as those terrorists. Well, one thing we know about racism is it shortens people's life expectancy. And before 9-11 and after 9-11, we saw a decrease in the life expectancy of Arab Americans. And then African Americans and hiring. We look and we consistently see that black folks have about double the unemployment rate of white folks. But what we may not know is that hiring discrimination has remained unchanged since 1989. If you look at meta-studies, it just has not moved the needle. And so the truth is, you know, many areas are racialized. And I still talk to people, and they say, you know, only if only there was some evidence that was a, there were race-based differences, or if there is only some way to show, you know, that, that racism really exists. And I'm like, we have a hundred years at least 100 years, over 100 years, of social scientific research that says race matters for life chances. But it's hard for people to believe that. And so we have to, as a church, start believing that so that we're not having people say, well, such and such just sees race in everything. Really, was it one of those things? Because if it was, it may have been. (laughs) It may have been. 
And one of the things that this does, uh, there's a book called The Elusive Dream that I recommend to everyone. Uh, it was written by my advisor. But she studied a multiracial church that had a black pastor and was majority black. But what she found out was they weren't doing that thing in 1 Corinthians that we talked about earlier. That the people who received honor outside the church, the white congregation, they also received all of the honor inside the church. And so even though the pastor was black and the congregation was black, the white congregants won out in disagreements over religious and non-religious matters. And she came to the conclusion that diverse churches only work, only exist to the extent that they're comfortable for white folks, which means they may be uncomfortable for everybody else. That is not painting the picture of John 17 that we want to paint. And so we need to be really honest with ourselves as we're coming together, not just in local churches, but as the Ohio Ministries Network. Are there some folks who feel more comfortable here than others? Are there some folks who are more centered here than others? And looking at that and dealing with that. And the idea is the difference between unity slash diversity and equity. So diversity says, let's meet in the middle. Everybody comes in equal distance. But when we're recognizing that everyone has a different distance to travel to make it to the middle, we start to uh, change some of these differences so that people don't have to go um, further than others to be together. And then finally, quickly, gender, and I will open it up for questions. I'm not talking about biological sex here. Gender, sociologically, is this idea that just like we assign meaning to racial groups, we also assign meaning to male and female. So the fact that I am in a female body is one thing, but if you also expect me to cook and clean and be very um, um, delicate and gentle because I'm in the body, that becomes gender. Because there's, uh, <laughs> there's nothing biologically that makes women more likely to cook. Um, it's something that we as a society have put this assumption on. And the assumptions are very different by, um, by uh, society. You know, if you look at the Aka group um, in East Africa, the women are the hunters and the men stay home with the kids. That's a choice. Yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> but when we, <laughs> when, we take, when we take these gender assumptions and we decide this is biblical manhood or this is biblical womanhood or somehow, we take people and we put them into these tiny boxes and we say this is who you're supposed to be. And if you're not this, then you don't fit. Again, with the eyes and the stomachs and the things. And so I have talked to so many women who are just like, well, I'm not a woman like that, so do I belong in the church? Yes! Be exactly the woman that God has created you to be. And so how does this show up when in our congregations and in our different places? Well, women, even in places where we say we have the equity of roles, um, we don't have nearly as many women lead pastors in our denomination, our network, uh, as we do men lead pastors. There's no rules against women being lead pastors. Women are more than half of our network. Um, but still, we have these ideas in our head that may prevent women from doing what God has called them to do. 
church going also reduces women's educational attainment and further earnings. So I would expect, looking at the example of Jesus, who had women traveling with him on the road and being the funders of all the stuff that they did, that we would look at the church and say women are going to be more free here than any place else because we're following the example of Jesus. We see exactly the opposite. We see women being more constrained who go to church, not just within the church, but in the rest of the world. And so when we deal with gender, again, we want to free up people to be who they are. You know, if you want to stay home with the kids, you should be able to stay home with the kids, and nobody should give you a side eye for that. And we mourn um, the folks who were killed this week uh, in that spa shooting. But our understandings of gender and race are not detached from this. The church that the shooter went to has denounced his act in no uncertain terms. But we have to be very careful with our teachings about gender and about race. Is there any point at which we don't teach that people are equal in the image of God? Not necessarily explicitly. You'd never say it explicitly. But are there implicit things? Are there things that we leave out? Are there things that we turn a blind eye to that allow people to leave our congregations with that idea? Are there things that, again, not purposefully, but maybe we teach about purity culture and the way women are to comport themselves and, and, and men and, and their ability or lack of ability to control themselves that would lead somebody to believe that this would be a righteous act. We have to be really careful with what we're teaching in our churches around these things because it enables people not to treat people as image bearers when that happens. So the solution in all things is love. 1 Corinthians 13, which comes after and before all of these divisions because it allows us to say this is the standard with which we treat one another. All right. I'm done talking. I want you guys to talk now. Questions? Yes. So I background come from pretty actually far right conservative. Mm -hmm. And one one thing that I always hear is, for example, my dad would say, I'm I don't see color, I'm colorblind. Mm -hmm. And I I would say we should see and we should like you brought up the point of give greater honor to the parts that lack. How do we address that perspective to those that say they're colorblind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say, and that's a great question because a lot of folks do say that, um, but that perspective is minimizing um, to part of my identity, you know, and we can do it biblically. So if we look at Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, we see every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping around the throne of God. Well, we couldn't see that, or John couldn't see that, if it weren't evident that these folks were different, that these folks were from all backgrounds. So God clearly sees color um, because God desired it to be part of our eternal identity around God's throne. And so if that's God's view, then I want to have God's eyes. I want to also see people in that way so that um, 
our unity can be made beautiful in that. Yeah. Like if you are around a two or three year old, they do not, I don't think they see the color. So I mean, they, they are, they love and they yeah. share and express and you're my friend, you know, because I have a two year old grandson that mm-hmm. he does, he loves everyone. And it's amazing to me, like you said, we only see two or three things. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're already in our mind because of the way we grew up. And I would love for him to teach me how I should see things, you know, because so, they have that. I hate being the person to say things after that because that is such a beautiful sentiment. And we would love to believe that children don't see color, but thats it's just not true. By the time, and so maybe your, your grandbaby has another year, but the, by the time a child is three or four, they can discriminate racially. They like some faces better than others. They trust some people more than others. And so the same messages that we are embedded with in terms of race and how we should think about people based on their outward appearance, children have it by three or four. My daughter, when she was four years old and in preschool, had an issue with another child because that child came to preschool and was like, oh, our family doesn't talk to black people. Mother did not want to address it with me, did not want to talk about it. Oh, they're just kids. It's fine. But the thing is, we live in an old house. (laughs) Our kids breathe the same air in that old house. And so they catch it even before we realize it. In fact, one of the things that we're working with under... The, the love and unity umbrella is where actually we have one um, branch of a preschool open that's designed to teach kids about how to live into love and unity at the age where they're realizing all these messages around me tell me certain people are good and certain people are bad. So it's part of what we're doing intentionally to like, yes, they're catching it, but they're also young enough that we can erase it. Mm-hmm. We want to go that direction. We want yes. to understand that people have different histories, different 
uh, backgrounds, experiences, how do we bring that same concepts to what I see that it's also valuable to see on some level gender because if, if we're mm-hmm. all if men and women are all the same in everything, there's no there's no real vet. like if, mm-hmm. if you take color blindness and turn it into gender blindness, um, to me we're losing something as well where the, yeah, the church I, I think has has drawn so many wrong conclusions from like these these men and women talks or sexuality talks mm-hmm. on how to act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the I do see facts remain that men and women are on some level there's unique experiences. So how do we validate mm-hmm. unique experiences just from being a man or a woman? Um, you, you know, and saying that there's yeah there's unique experiences, mm-hmm. but but. They're not translating that into inherent value or the ability to lead or anything like that. Because you don't want to just erase and just say the mm-hmm. only difference is our bodies have different things. Or mm-hmm. Like, so where's where's that balance to you on on valuing a unique experience of gender? Yeah, I think absolutely. That's a really good point. So the idea, the question was about valuing the unique experience that that folks of different genders bring in, and the thing that we want to avoid is taking experiences and making them biology. So just like the same thing with race, we don't take somebody and say, because they're Asian, they're good at math, or because they're this, they're, you know, because they're black, they're good at sports, or because they're whatever, whatever the thing may be, and turn that into an essential characteristic of them. It may be that, you know, you are black and you cook well because you come from a family of good cooks and a line of good cooks, but that's not because you were born knowing how to season, you know, your food. So the same thing with women and men. In society, we have different experiences, basically our entire lives. Women, you know, we've seen a lot of great leadership by countries that have been led by women during this pandemic because their leadership styles tend to be more collective. They tend to be more um, caretaking in their leadership styles. So we look at a woman leader, though, and we say, well, women are just naturally more collective. Women are naturally more um, nurturing. That's diminishing the idea. No, she learned these skills through her experiences in life. And that means she doesn't need to be limited to those roles, but perhaps she has experiences that allow her to better fulfill those roles. I think what we do with gender even more explicitly than with race, we say men's brains are this way and women's brains are this way and men's brains are waffles and women's brains are spaghetti. Do you want a spaghetti brain person with their finger on the the red button? No. And so by saying these are essential differences of men and women, we start to say, women, you go in this category and you can fulfill these roles, and men, you go in this category and fulfill these roles. Whereas a lot of those essential differences are either something that's learned by experience or they're a small tendency that has been overblown as this is the tendency of the whole group. So I think it's that that care to say, what am I really talking about here? So you would, it seemed like you would disagree with the spaghetti waffle because I've oh, that. Oh, big time. To, in, again, my, my role, my scope is limited, but yeah. I know for me and my wife that's certainly true where mm-hmm. she's way better at multitasking and can mm-hmm. be doing different things and I've heard that repeated over and over and over. Mm-hmm. So are women just learning how to multitask because they're told they're good at it? Or like, it seems like there is something natural in the way, it generally, not 100%, but it seems like, it seems like there is, that is a general... Uh, I've said that to be true, but is, is that not? Is that not, just not scientifically reported, or where did that even come yes. from? Yes. To me, it doesn't Ooh. seem like spaghetti is better than waffle. It just seems like it's too different. Well, if you can't focus on one thing, and like that, so this is where it comes from. Um, bell curb. 
These are not quite supposed to be above each other, but take these as bell curves. So this is like a normal distribution, and let's say this is men, and let's say this bell curve is women. So you see almost the whole, um, this bell curve. So this one to the left is men. It doesn't matter. You could pick either one. This one is women. So almost the whole bell curve overlaps. There is more similarity between these two groups than there is difference. And in fact, it's also true with men and women. There's more difference within groups than there is between groups, if you were to do the statistics. But because this bell curve is a little bit this way, and this bell curve is a little bit that way, we take that and then we say, all right, waffle, spaghetti. And we ignore that there's more overlap than there is difference. So I'm not saying the people are incorrect. What I'm saying is it's an overstatement. There, there's a ton of women who waffle, and there's a ton of men who are spaghetti. And when we divide them and say men are supposed to be this, women are supposed to be this, or men are typically this, women are typically this, you leave a whole bunch of people in your church saying, well, I'm not a woman like that. Am I even a woman? I don't know, because that's not how I am. So I'm going to change and not become a man. Because I, I do all these things that men do, so I must be a man. God didn't, God didn't intend that. Right. We don't need to, we can say, some people tend to think like this, and that's what we do when we do our marriage counseling. Some people in a couple may think like this. Other people in a couple may think like this. Which one are you? And that opens up the possibilities to say, oh, I've been like this my whole life, and that's okay? Yeah, that's okay. So how do you talk about and value those distinctions, right? Because there are distinctions between men and women. Right. And how, so how do you have that conversation and open up that dialogue where I teach my daughter you should be cherished and valued because you are uh, a, a, a woman this is how a man should treat you versus how I tell my son this is how he should treat a woman. Not necessarily saying that you shouldn't be valued, mm -hmm. but, but there, there are, there's a distinction in between. So how do you have that conversation? So for instance, girls playing football, you know, men, we come and we, 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 you know, but I don't want to knock this woman's head off playing football, right? So I'm just saying, how do we... But if she's in the game, you should knock her head off. Because that is the point right, of being right, in the right, game, right? I know, I'm just, but I'm just saying, how do we have that discussion within those distinctions and highlighting those distinctions and then saying we want to value it and not patronize? We want to be real clear about which distinctions are biblical and which ones we created. And I think you'll find that a lot of the distinctions that we teach as biblical are stuff we created, and they're snuffing people out and, like, wrecking their humanity. And we don't want to do that, you know. Men and women sit side by side, and God said, y'all have dominion over the earth. So let's partner in doing that. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. We're out of time.